1: E-S-N-Y Early afternoon of uh, Tuesday, January 12th. It's 5 o'clock. Rolling as always with my co-host Chip Murphy. Chip, what's going on, man? How you doing?
2: I'm doing good, man. Looking at this Sean Marks statement on the Kyrie Irving saga. Pretty wild.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, The saga that continues uh, for sure. Um, The Nets and, and Knicks actually play on Wednesday night. Uh, We are very pumped to have a very special guest on the podcast. Right now, the Knicks sit at five and six. Uh, If we're being honest, probably playing above preseason expectations at this point. The offense has been really rough, uh, an eyesore in some games. Defense has been pretty good for the most part. Mixed bag when it comes to player development. But uh, to help Chip and I break all of that down, we're very honored and uh, really pumped to have on a super talented writer the beat writer for the knicks uh covers the knicks for the athletic mike vorkanoff mike what's going on man thank you so much for coming on the podcast
0: hey guys uh yeah i mean i'm sure this would have been a little bit more exciting uh, a week ago when the knicks were riding high as opposed to now where uh where things have not gone well the last three games
1: yeah you know what we're, we're gonna still try and make it exciting um you know i i think there's this is a team with, with so much history, so many different places to go, um, but I think I, I want to start with a question that's going to tie in a little bit of the offseason and the current situation for the Knicks. Um, in a, in a little, for a little bit of research for this podcast, I, I was listening to the Pod Strickland episode you did with Schwinn and the guys. I think it was from September. And uh, I know that at least in part, you'd advocated for, you know, trading for Chris Paul, somebody who can maybe speed up the development, bring back some semblance of of organization uh, in in terms of on the court play, you know, watching Chris Paul play now with the Suns, um, how much different do you think the Knicks would be, you know, in in the way they're playing right now, as as opposed to, you know, kind of with Alfred Payton, we know they have a ton of holes to fill on the offense, but what do you think would be different at this moment?
0: I mean, I think they wouldn't be struggling as much on offense. Um, it wouldn't just be Julius Randall bearing the burden of making everything work. Uh, Chris Paul, obviously is, you know, pretty damn good at what he does. And I mean, you're, you're, they have the second worst offense in the league at the time that we're taping this right now. Um, so like, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think they would probably be in a better place because you get to pair up a really good point guard with um, with you know uh, a really good coach or at least a day-to-day type of coach with, with Tom Thibodeau um, so I mean I, I think it would do kind of well I think they would probably be better than five and six you wouldn't have three straight games under 90 points with Chris Paul running the show so I, I mean I think the improvement would obviously be there
1: and uh, that also goes you know kind of hand in hand with my second question here so um, I think most fans, if you ask them, were pretty impressed, at least with the coaching staff hires and some of the hires to the analytics department. Um, and I think the feeling that we got from the franchise was that, you know, we were moving into a more uh, more modern organization in terms of philosophy and, and team building. You know, with, with all that um, happened in the offseason, would you expect a more efficient offense at this point? I know it's very early. Uh, or are you yourself kind of exercising more patience in that area given that, you know, for the most part, there's still a lot of new players, new coaching staff, people are getting used to each other. Um, do you think it's fair for the average fan to be pretty um upset about the offense at this point?
0: I, I mean, you know, look, the, the 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 efficiency and the competence of the offense, you know, without talent will only go so far, right? Like that they're shorthanded by the by the lack of talent on the team. There's you usually no more than like one good shooter out on the floor at any one time. Uh not to mention injuries to Alec Burks and Obi Toppin. And um I'm sure my brain is short circuiting right now, but there's someone else, you know. So like it, it's been all of those things. But I, I never expected this to be like, you know, top half of the league offense just because the the talent doesn't seem to be there. We see some kind of um I guess, modern NBA, if you want to call it analytic profiles, They're third in the league percentage shots that are at the rim and 11th in percentage of shots that are corner threes, according uh, to cleaning the, the glass, and, you know, that's progress from the last few years. Uh, but, uh, you know, usually teams are only as good as the players that they have. You know, I, I think this isn't like college where, uh, where you can bring in a, a really good coach and just uh, all of a sudden over one off season, just reboot into like a top 20 team, right? Like uh, I, you're only as good as the players that you have and the Knicks, you know, missed out on adding guy like Gordon Hayward over the offseason, it seems like, and everyone else that, you know, is just kind of a marginal addition to that roster.
2: Uh, the only two worst half-court teams offensively than the Knicks are Memphis and Cleveland. Like, and It's not great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the Knicks are 28th in half-court points per 100 plays, but the Knicks are 20, the thing that, bugs me about the offense because again i'm trying to be patient but they're 29th in pace and dead last in fast break points like a team like mm-hmm. memphis is a court like you said cleaning the glass memphis is fifth in transition points added per 100 possessions cleveland not as high but they still run a lot too like the knicks never run obviously they're yeah. 29th in base last in fast break points so what is there an adjustment that you think can be made with like the, given the personnel on the team right now that they can adjust the way they play to get more easy buckets.
0: Yeah. I mean, apart, again, like, and I, and I hate to he- keep harping on this and it's actually really not meant to absolve anyone because they had the opportunity this offseason to build this roster out differently if they wanted to, it's part of his personnel, right? Like Alfred Payton, isn't a guy who's known for getting it up to four quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julius Randle brings the ball up a lot. That's kind of the way that this offense works and he's not a burner. Um, and he likes to get to certain spots on the floor even when he does bring it up so you'd like to see them play faster but I'm not sure that they have the type of guys to play faster and do it well because it's not just about speed and I'm sure that's part of the maybe the um, the trade-off that Tom Thibodeau is thinking about is is speed and the efficiency at which you play um, if you go fast like you know the talk all throughout the preseason was that because they're young they should go play faster and that just didn't turn out to be that way you know they're not like particularly like especially slow according to impredictable you know they're 17th in the league in uh in time to shot at you know 11.9 seconds so that's kind of middle of the pack right i I think it's worth looking at that as much as it is about pace because pace can be deceiving sometimes that's you know pace is is reflective of how both teams played in a game and 10 and 10 games into this or 11 games into the season right like that's weighted significantly by the teams that are playing, but it's, you know, it's not like they're going to burn it up, but um, all of it to me, just goes back to how they built this team out in the off season. Uh, They didn't really add a lot of help. They didn't add a lot of players who would make them better this season. And now we're kind of seeing the limitations of that.
2: I think mostly the playing up tempo thing. I agree with you that there's not a lot of help maybe on the roster, but the playing up tempo thing seems to help a younger guy like Knox has always thrive. Fast in the fast break and you look at someone like Obi Toppin when he comes back that seems to be his best asset right now is playing in the fast break and he's just gonna excel there early like it seems like it would help those guys to play that way maybe like I don't know if Emmanuel quickly moving into the starting spot is the answer but like just some sort of change to help that out yeah I get that but like also,
0: listen to, you know, one, Obi Toppin's been hurt, right? Um, yeah, 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 So, like, you know, maybe they would have played a little bit faster and it seemed like in the offseason they were, not the offseason, the preseason, you know, they gave him some chances to grab the ball off the break and off the rebound and bring the ball up on the break and all those types of things. But, like, those are really small, marginal additions. And and I don't know. I'd have to go check on the numbers and just maybe look into it a little bit. But I I, I don't know. I just don't see that making that big of a of a dent for them really you're gonna have to succeed in the half court at some point um and i just don't see them having these dynamic uh transition players where it would make much of a difference i totally get what you mean about making kind of marginal additions and and playing a little bit faster and playing a little bit better um i just don't know what it all what it all leads to uh, is is basically what i'm saying
2: yeah. Well, just to it's so hard for them to score in the half court, just to get right. some easy baskets in transition <laughs> would be nice. Some yeah, but sometimes though, like,
0: you know, if you have a bunch of guys who aren't known as great decision makers, um, and I don't think that they have a lot of great athletes either, especially mm-hmm. with Toppen being hurt, uh, quickly miss some games. Um, I don't know if the putting them into transition, getting them to play faster and asking them to make uh, decisions in that way is also always going to lead to great results. Matt.
1: I think Mike, to your point too, like um, something I was thinking about the other day is like, as fans, you know, we're, we're on Twitter all the time and we see, you know, the clamoring for Alec Burks. And I mean, there's no question the way he started off the season, it was really amazing. But if as a fan base, if we're really putting our hopes and dreams in, you know, a, essentially a career 36% shooter from three who's on his sixth team in <laughs> seasons. Like,
0: well, when you put it like that, geez.
1: No, but you know what? I'm, and and listen, I like Alec Burks. Like, and he's shot the lights out. He's whatever, three games, 60% from from three point. But, uh, you know, I do, maybe it's true. Like we have to kind of temper and, and reshape our expectations because if he comes back, he's going to need time. I mean, he's in a walking boot, right? Like, so right. when he gets back, he's going to need time to get reacclimated, And And um, I don't know. I, I, I think it it's funny. Like the more we talk about it and prior to the season, I guess what Vegas had it, had us at 22 wins, but you know, you, you start off at five and three and you start talking yourself into, well, you know, can we get 32 games? Can we get 33 here and there? And, and be kind of a team on the rise with, you know, some cap space and, and draft picks, um, you know, but it, it is, it is tough given, I guess, we come back to the way the roster was constructed in the off season.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. For sure. I I don't know if 33 wins, at least to me, you know, I had them at like 22 wins before the season. Uh, So I was pretty bearish on them. And um, you know, the first 11 games haven't really done justice to my prediction. we'll see how it goes over the whole, (laughs) over the whole damn season. Um, But yeah, I, I totally get, I totally get where you're coming from. And, I don't know. I'd like to see for one, what this team looks like um, with everyone healthy. Like, I don't think that ulti- that automatically makes it a playoff team or something, but I-, I think there could be a more fun version of this team with, you know, with Burks uh, with Toppin, Um, and uh, you know, if Kevin Knox is shooting at the level that he's been shooting to start the season, like if that's real, if he's like a 37% three-point shooter, you know, that gives them some extra shooting and a, a bigger wing that they can throw out there. And Um, you know, it also gives them the options to like, just maximize their shooting potential on the floor at any given moment around like Julius Randle or RJ Barrett. And uh, that should help too.
1: Yeah. And um, you know, speaking of Barrett, um, a a question that I really want to ask you, you know, it's, it's no secret, right? that Julius Randle and and RJ are leading the NBA in minutes per game. They're clearly a big part of the team. um, But this is also a criticism that's kind of followed Tibbs. To multiple stops um, in his coaching career. But, you know, and in in my perspective, and and correct me if you feel like, you know, the interpretation is off, but I felt like the way Leon constructed the front office and the coaching staff, there was at least a sense to me that there was going to be kind of this checks and balances in in place that it was understood that, okay, we brought Tibbs on because um, his basketball acumen, there's going to be a level of accountability Um, he, he rises the level of expectations in the locker room, but there's also some faults that come along with him, but we're going to put some people in place that are going to kind of check him, um, here and there. Do you think, do you get a sense that there's anyone on the coaching staff or within the front office that is going to come to him and say, listen, you know, we've seen the way you're playing RJ and Julius now shorthanded, you know, you you can kind of have a different conversation but do you get the sense that there's going to be anyone that's going to kind of tell him we got to scale it back a little bit with the minutes? I, you know, so I think this
0: actually is, and I'm not going to, I'll get back to what you're saying. And I think the the reason why I have difficulty answering and talking about this is I think the minutes thing is kind of, um, is kind of an iceberg type of uh, discussion to have. Like we get to see the 10% that everyone knows, right? We know what the minutes per game Numbers are. What we don't know is the overall workload. And I think that really matters. You know, just writing about kind of workload and um, the physiology of sports and other issues, like it really does matter all the workload that you put into a game, into a practice, into um, even your off days, right? And so I think that all wears on someone. And so I don't have a full appreciation for how to answer that without knowing like how hard he's practicing, making those guys practice, how hard. Um, you know, they all have to go on a day-to-day basis, not just on games, but I agree with you. Like you would think that having people who know Tibbs really well, um, would kind of rein in some of his worst instincts, his kind of his shortcomings as a coach, unless, you know, they're all of the same mind, right. That has to be a consideration too. We don't know that, you know, like Tibbs is saying one thing and the rest of the world is like, no, don't do this. But <laughs> you know, like there's people who believe a lot of the same things that he does and have this viewpoint of workload. I mean, I think if you look at the Pacers, like uh, Demonta Sabonis and Malcolm Brogdon are also in the top six of minutes played. And I believe I just saw their head coach, Nate Bjorkman. Uh, God, I probably butchered that last name, um, say something similar along the lines of just what not having a problem with their workload. And I think he's coming from the same place. Um, so I think we just have to understand that, you know, I, I don't know that my view of minutes and workload is monolithic and there's information that we just don't have either about how much all these guys are actually uh, doing in games and in places we can't see.
2: The best players play a bunch of minutes. That's how, it, yeah. and that's how Tibbs <laughs> views it. Yeah. That's yeah, how I mean, always that, gonna be.
0: yeah. I mean, I think when he got hired, he was like, uh, you know, I played Jimmy Butler 40 minutes a game. Cause like, you know, he was guarding LeBron and LeBron played 40 minutes a game. Okay. I, you know, there's some obvious logical shortcomings in that type of philosophy about how you play your players. But if he's also like making Julius Randall really not practice in between games, then it's, it's, you know, there's some, um, you know, there's, there's kind of some context there that's necessary. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an overall workload issue. And that's why I kind of struggle writing about this. It's, it's just there's so much we don't know. And it's not like if I go to Tom in the next you know press conference, I'm like, Tom, so like, how hard are you really working these guys? Like, is Julius actually practicing that much or just have days off between games? He's be like, well, here, let me lay it out. Here's my book. Here's my notebook. Here's our red line numbers <laughs> from our sports science staff. Um, you know, like, I, I don't know, we just see the numbers. And I feel like that's just kind of the you know, the tip of the iceberg um, in a lot of ways in understanding this. Which is not well, to say it's okay to play guys 40 minutes every night either. But, you know, there is kind of some moderation
2: involved. Well, Jeff, you said the practices in Minnesota were not as bad as people made them out to be, right? There was an article all about that.
1: Yeah, well, we well, we had, um, I mean, there was a, that article from John Krasinski, mm-hmm. um, but we also had the chance to, to talk to Kyle Radke.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: from, from who used to work for USA today. And, and like, it was a, I mean, I feel like we got more information about Tibbs the person as opposed to how the only thing he did say that I think, you know, threw us off guard a little bit granted, you know, during his tenure in Minnesota, they went through a lot of ups and downs, but he did say like, at times it was really not fun to be around the team. You know, like when, when the team is losing, um, whether it's just Tibbs is, attitude his disposition it was just very difficult to be around them um and the players you could feel it you know just being around the locker room and I think he even told the story what did he say like oh you got Tibbs like he 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 was oh yeah some type yeah. of interview that uh,
2: Tibbs was going to interview he said Tibbs agreed to do an interview with him and then he found out later that Tibbs lied to him and said uh that he was going to be there that day and that he was flying out that night and he then wasn't the, P- gonna be there.
1: the PR <laughs> guy was like, kind of laughed at him, and he was like, "Ah, listen, you got tips. Like, you know, <laughs> happens to everybody, you know." Like, but um, uh, that's kind of weird. Yeah, I. You know, I. Again, it's um. There were a lot of ups and downs in in Minnesota, but um. I again, I I guess just the reason I asked that question too is just because the the feeling that you got from the Krasinski article was that if the kind of the negative perceptions that people have about Tips's coaching style. If anyone could check that in some way, it was going to be Leon Rose. So I think as we go further into the season, we'll have a bigger sample size for me, it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, Cause you always see him on the court too. It seems like him and Johnny Brian are like connected at the hip. Like they're, they're constantly talking to each other. Um, so I just wonder if, and again, and this kind of goes to your point, Mike, like we just don't have this information. Um, I just wonder if as we go further, the conversations that are had um, within the coaching staff, whether it's front office, if people are are deliberately going up to him and saying like, you know, we see this, we we need to do this differently. Or is it, you know, and Leon kind of said this, I know he hasn't made many public statements, but he did kind of say, Coach is going to pick his lineups. He's going to choose how he wants to run this team, the way he wants to run this team, because I trust him.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Um, we just, we don't know what, what Leon Rose is. He's still a blank slate, right? Um, you know, he's spoken once publicly and there it really didn't get into much detail there about what he thinks and what he believes. And it was really just, you know, lots of, lots of cliches and, and surface skimming. Um, so I can't, you know, like, I don't know. He might just they might all have the same viewpoint um, on this. And it's really not as much of a an issue as we're all making it out to be. And I think that's going to be interesting is learning over the next year and, you know, the rest of the season, another another offseason and draft, just how Leon uh, views being an executive and just like his principles in that job.
1: Um, Another player that I wanted to touch on, again, another thing that's no secret at all is is how much R.J. Barrett is struggling shooting the ball right now. Um, You know, I I know that any type of move within the starting lineup in terms of positioning, there's a lot of dominoes that that fall after that. Um, But do you think – again, I know we're 11 games in. Do you think that Tibbs should consider playing him at a different position other than the two? Uh, There was even talk, you know – in the summer that maybe the four would be considered, you know, just maybe giving him an advantage to take advantage of, of slower forwards and and try and get to the basket that way, get to the line a little bit more. What's kind of your take on that?
0: I mean, part of it is just like his shooting issues, you know, whatever position he plays, he's got to shoot better. Um, He was, I haven't checked the shooting numbers as of this morning yet, but after uh, entering yesterday and after the game he had, I assume they're not great still. So, whether you're playing him as the nominal two, the nominal four, like he's just got to shoot better. He's missing open shots. He's airballing open corner threes like he was last night. Um, You know, that's kind of position independent for him. Yeah, you know, it could help him to play, say, like a small ball four, but part of his game right now and um, one of the ways he's getting to the basket is kind of bullying smaller players. You know, he's done that a number of times, whether it's Pat Connaughton or, um, Victor Oladipo. And I wonder if he'll be able to do that just as well if he's playing, you know, big man and forwards um, more so than he is wings. Right. So you have to understand his strengths and his weaknesses. And, um, you know, this is probably just a big, like prolonged slump for him. And at some point he'll pull out like he's probably not this bad of a shooter. Uh, but finding the right position and just the right way to play him, more importantly than just what the position is, is going to be important, and, and that's going to be part of the task at hand for for Tom Thibodeau and that coaching staff, is uh, figuring out how to maximize RJ Barrett and just understanding that these very like steep peaks and valleys uh, are going to be parts of his game, at least as a shooter, just because he's not consistent at this point and he's not a good shooter, and that's that's what
2: happens when you're not a good shooter. Right. Mike, is there anything in particular you noticed with RJ this year different from last year with his struggles? Because it looked like he was on a hot streak at the end of before last year before the season shut down, and now he's just gone ice cold after starting out the season hot with that 3-3 or game. Yeah, I, I mean, like,
0: I think he was shooting pretty well, and it was the final, like, 10 games or so and that's not really a substantive sample size for shots, Mm -hmm. especially, um, that could have just been a hot streak. And and the thing I like to say, and and I, and I think is true is that, um, when you're a bad shooter, inconsistency is the norm, right? So you will have periods and games where you shoot well, and then you'll have like these long valleys, like you did when he missed like 21 straight threes earlier in the season. Um, so that should be expected. And so, Uh, I don't know if like a good shooting streak of three, four games becomes norm. It should just be maybe more viewed as a mirage. And so until he's able to do that consistently over the course of a season, uh, we can't assume anything else. And so I, you know, the, the ability to make shots earlier in the year was probably just making him seem better than he, he is, uh, or is at this point in his career. And now that he's like on a really ice cold streak, it's making him seem worse. Uh, Over the course of a year, that'll find its level, but that's what you can kind of expect if you're an inconsistent shooter like that.
1: Um, A couple of more uh, before we let you go, you know, we obviously know you're super busy Uh, in a recent post-game interview. Well, in recent post-game interviews, we've kind of seen Austin Rivers assert himself as a kind of a vocal leader, you know, someone who's been preaching a lot of patience um, saying that this is not a losing team, that he's been on losing teams, he knows what that looks like, what that sounds like, uh, and that they're going to get better from a defensive and, and offensive end. You know, I I know that Julius is a leader on this team as well, but, you know, 11 games in, do you see Austin um, kind of asserting himself and, and being a leader on this team, even with missing preseason? Um, how do you see that kind of playing out?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, he's been very vocal. I think right now, like no one loves being a Nick more than Austin Rivers. Um, he's, you know, he talks about wanting to come to New York and building things up again and all that stuff. And he's preaching patience and saying, you know, if you're a Knicks fan, you're going take in five and six. And um, yeah, he's definitely asserting some level of leadership and I, he's only 28, but like, I think he's, you know, one of the older guys on the team. He might be the old, second oldest now, the Taj Gibson uh, has been signed. You're, you're, you can double check that for me, but like, he's a veteran and sure. on this team, there's not a lot of them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I think he's definitely asserting some, some leadership on the team. And, and, you know, I, I think we, it's not like leadership is just unilateral on most NBA teams. Um, I think there's a number of guys who have their voices heard.
2: Bullock and Burks are both older than him. I remember that Bullock. Okay, you got me. me. That's why I said.
0: Call me out on it. Go
2: ahead. (laughs) I was just looking at basketball reference, so I happened to notice. (laughs) But uh, I didn't know that off the top of my head. But no, but Rivers is clearly excited, I mean, to play for, uh, not just to play for the Knicks, but to play for Tibbs. So I wanted to ask you about the the Tibbs-Rivers relationship, just if you noticed anything specific there, because there's clearly such a trust and a, uh, foundation between those two guys,
0: yeah, and, and they've known each other for a long time. Like mm-hmm. um you know, Tibbs and Austin have a relationship that's a little personal and goes back more than a decade. He was an assistant in Boston when you know uh, Doc Rivers was the coach there, and Austin Rivers was coming up to visit as a teenager, right? So they've known each other way before it was player coach, and I think you know that probably builds a base and a relationship for them. And um, no one has been a. a, a a louder advocate for Tibbs so far, I think, than Austin Rivers has. And so it seems like they have a, a good relationship going. And, um, you know, it's good to have that kind of vocal person in, in the locker room, uh, although I don't know what in the locker room means anymore because I think yeah. the new NBA COVID protocol said they can't spend more than, like, 10 minutes together anymore. Um, so, like, at least have someone on the team who is uh, who's there to to shout you out, to promote you externally, and then it seems like, uh, buy in on what you're doing internally.
1: And, um, you know, a, another one that I wanted to ask, I know, you know, listening to that, that Pod Strickland episode that you'd covered um, major league baseball also within your career as, as a reporter too. How does covering the Knicks compared to other teams or other sports you've covered in the past? You know, do you feel like, you know, because the Knicks have such a rabid fan base, uh, do you feel like you interact now with fans more than you have at any other time than during your career
0: um uh, Mets fans are pretty rowdy too uh I I gotta say you know it's just a it's um I like covering the Mets and I, I like um getting to to just deal with Mets fans too and um they were pretty fun and um I got to cover them the year they they went to the World Series and that really just amped things up so that was that was a lot of fun um I don't know. They're, they're, they're the same, but different. uh, I would say just in terms of um, the fans and, and just uh, the type of people that you get to be lucky to talk to Uh, in terms of actually covering the sports, it's just vastly different just because like there's so many more people on the Mets, you know, on any one baseball team access is so much different. Um, It's a lot more uh, free form in terms of talking to players, getting to know players than it is an NBA locker room, especially with the Knicks who are, um, you know, everyone knows about Knicks (laughs) covering the Knicks and the difficulties they're in. So, you know, I feel like I got to know people better when I was covering the Mets, but uh, part of that is just kind of the format of this whole thing and covering the league. Uh, But I I like both jobs. I I mean, I love basketball a lot more, so it's been, it's been more fun and rewarding in
2: that regard.
1: Chip, um, do you have any uh, other questions for Mike?
2: Uh, Just wanted to ask you Mike about Mitchell Robinson. Because he's been amazing this year. And when me and Jeff talked about the season, preseason, uh, we mentioned Mitch as a guy who we were kind of concerned about, given all the reporting before the season and maybe some potential like tension between him and Tibbs. Not that that was reported, but we were concerned about that. Uh, all the stuff about him switching agents, all that. So what's been your impression of Mitch so far in the early season? He's been a lot better. He's been,
0: you know, I, I don't think that like, how, how do I express it? I don't think that if you read between the tea leaves that, um, it was unwarranted to have some like skepticism about Mitchell Robinson, you know, the Knicks didn't Tom Thibodeau didn't give him a starting job in the first two preseason games yeah. either. It, it seemed like he was trying to draw something out of him as well. So, uh, it's it seems like they have, you know, he's playing a lot better. His foul rate obviously is down. He played 41 minutes the other night, had two fouls, which you like you. You couldn't have guessed that before the mm-hmm. year. Right. Um, So he's definitely improved that. I think it, you're probably more optimistic about him now. You know, I, I don't know that the numbers are like significantly better, but just being able to do that over a longer period of time for an extra five, 10 minutes a night. That's pretty big um especially with the kind of the impact that he has as a player so I you know I think I'm more bullish on him long term now than I was to start the year um I'm curious I'm curious if he can keep getting better right there's some obvious flashpoints to his game that can improve namely like the offensive stuff and just doing stuff with the ball and shooting and (laughs) like it seems pretty simple but like he's been talking about it for a while. The Knicks have been talking about it for a while. It just hasn't happened yet. Um, and if he can prove to be a true defensive anchor, like that'll mean a lot for the Knicks too. you know, just getting closer to, to being not just a guy who blocks shots, but a guy who can
2: really be the anchor of a defense. And the rebounding too. Yeah. Yeah. Rebounding can be a little better. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's no, that's a good point. And that's important. Like I, you know, I used to think like, ah, rebounding, like who cares? Mm -hmm. Um, but now it's like, I forget who said it. And I just ingrained in my head since like defensive rebounding and possessions, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you got to rebound. Well,
1: no, it's true. Um, there was actually my, just one quick one that I, I literally just thought of, um, kind of an afterthought, you know, we literally saw Dennis Smith jr. Get, um, you know, some minutes. We haven't seen him in a while. It wasn't uh, oh, yeah. it was a pass game, but I, I believe it was an OKC game. And, you know, you, you, you follow NBA teams and, you know, you get the sense that uh, at least last year, there were still some people in the front office who were really in Dennis Smith's corner, um, you know, in terms of maybe prioritizing or trying to prioritize his development, or at least just saying that they wanted to prioritize his development um, in covering the team as, as long as you have, or, you know, as close as you've been with them this year, you get the sense that. If any, that feeling is still there from the front office, from the coaches. I'm sure he's working with Johnny Bryant um, pretty frequently. But it, you know, do you get the sense that that as a team, as an organization, they feel like things can turn around for him?
0: Uh, I mean, sometimes the results are kind of borne out. I'm sure there's still optimism, but um, he's not playing right, and he's not playing for a reason. Even though the Knicks could use help at point guard, and he hasn't played well when he when he has been on the floor. Um, you know, he's in the last year of his deal. Uh, at the end of his rookie contract. And I would be surprised if he's back next year, just, you know, the way he's playing and, you know, and if he is back, it'd be nothing more than like a minimum contract, right? Like that's, he's, he's just not been playing well the last like year and a half. And it, that is what it is at this point.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's super fair. Um, well, I, I think we'll, we'll wrap up here. Mike, listen, thank you so much for giving us for giving us some time tonight. Uh, we really appreciate it uh talking with Nick's with you. Uh this is usually the point of the podcast where, you know, I, I have um our guests kind of say where they can find you on Twitter, where they can read all your work. Anyone <laughs> listening to us knows exactly who you are. So I don't think uh we need to do that here. So again, I just wanted to say from Chip and myself, thank you so much for coming on.
0: No, thanks, guys. Uh thanks for having me. I really do appreciate it. Um I will plug the athletic if you're not subscribed yet. Uh, go over and do that. We've got a pretty reasonable offer for everyone covering the league and the Knicks and all that. But um, no, I really do appreciate you guys having me on.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah. And for anyone, if you're not reading the athletic, if you're not doing it right. Um, definitely some of the best reporting out there and for everybody else out there, uh, we hope you guys are staying safe and we will talk to you soon.